This is the CineSnob Podcast. Welcome to episode 211 of the CineSnob Podcast. I'm Jared Kingery. I'm Cody Viafania. Cody, uh, I was mentioning to you before the show, I uh, actually like your hat today. I know it's a, one of your, um, you know, being a rascal hats about, you know, shitty movie hats. But hey, Jared, we don't, uh, we don't peel back the curtain here and we don't uh, reveal our bits. So oh, I, I don't appreciate sorry. you uh, doing I that. I thought we had, but okay. <laughs> you want everybody to think you were a fan of the whole 10 yards? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean the the joke, Jared, is that you don't address it. That oh. we don't we don't address re- it, and people are like, "Huh, hey, what's what's all this about?" We have talked about your hats literally almost every time. You well, you address the fact that I'm wearing one, but you don't make any sort of assumptions or commentary on them. Okay, so. well, I'm sorry that I blew the bit, but it's we'll fine. Lie. Our dozens of users or users, <laughs> our viewers are going to be uh, into our um, into our uh, podcast in which we did something with it this week. <laughs> so uh um that is a transformers hat um that is the autobot symbol on the front but it's specifically a revenge of the fallen hat i believe so it's on the i think it might be on the back of the hat um whatever Can you it read is. it in braille i was trying to i was trying to read uh, no i can't quite get it um yeah i mean it looks like something you'd buy at universal studios after you get off the transformers ride mm-hmm. and i'm not saying that's a good or bad thing i'm saying it's a Thing. No, I mean, if you're I, saying it, it's, you probably made it as a good thing. You know, um, I've I've been to Universal several times since that ride was opened. It's a, it's a really fun ride. I don't know how big you are on like simulator theme park rides or anything, but um, it's quite an experience. But man, I just wish to all hell it wasn't so closely related to those terrible terrible transformers movies that has to be particularly difficult for you as a childhood transformers fan to watch yeah. like four five six however many i mean i i would assume I, i'm just making assumptions here i assume that bumblebee is your favorite of the transformers movies yeah you know i, I don't mind the first one i don't mind the very first one because it had some actual um like storylines happening you know the the I don't know if you remember, like, there was a whole thing with Anthony Anderson in the first Transformers film. Anthony like a whole Anderson. story. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony Anderson was like a hacker in the first I don't Transformers. That at all. Anyway, so there was like more of this, well, there was more than one storyline happening throughout it. Um, but yeah, Bumblebee is probably the best one. Uh, but yeah, you know, I've had this conversation with people before. The idea that, that, you know, these Marvel films and even DC film, like if you're a fan of Marvel and DC, which, you know, I am obviously like anyone who grew up in my time frame, you know, you're getting pretty great adaptations or at least something that is interesting. Um, With being a Transformers fan, you're getting like racist dick jokes and fart jokes uh, married with softcore porn. It's like, what what am I even doing here? Like, what the fuck? Like we've, I think we've talked about it again on this show before. Like, what the fuck is happening in that one, the first one with Mark Wahlberg, where there's like a three minute conversation about how the Romeo and Juliet law, how his daughter's boyfriend is allowed to have sex with her. This is a fucking Transformers movie, <laughs> and you know, yeah. I, there's a there's a poster uh, right behind me here, Transformers the movie poster from the original animated film, and you know, it's something that I grew up with and loved. It was probably my favorite toy. I mean, probably not probably, but definitely my favorite toy line as a kid. And, you know, it was exciting. Like, hey, we're getting a Transformers movie. And the first one, I can forgive it a little bit because it was 2007. They hadn't really figured that shit out yet. But everything else other than Bumblebee has been just hot, hot garbage. Yeah. Well, and and two, it's been it's been like for some strange reason, a like a long lasting franchise where they keep on making these movies that I don't, I mean, I'm, I guess they make money, but who's enjoying them? I, I mean, I don't think on any level, any, any like purist transformers fans are enjoying it. And so I don't know. I mean, that, I, anyone I know who was super into transformers has not been a fan of the movies. And I that's don't know the, how could you be? That's the thing you go to, you go back to the Marvel films and you see like, Oh, 
they're even treating you know stupid concepts like Groot and Rocket Raccoon you know with mm-hmm. respect. Meanwhile, Transformers outside of the Optimus Prime character, which isn't even close to what it should be, mm-hmm. like everything yeah. else, they're just throwing names at shit. It's right. like, like oh, this is Hot Rod. Like that's not the Hot Rod you remember. It's just some other psychotic robot that is doing stupid shit and making veiled racist comments and you know in the in between slow-mo shots of some woman's ass they just, in between her legs from behind none of, <laughs> none of it none of it means anything and it's so terrible like it's just uh, look it, i mean it's it's michael bay 1000% but that i mean clearly hasbro is not the most um you know, guarded with their IP, I guess. There's, there's no real, like, uh, uh, there's no Kevin Feige behind the scenes making <laughs> sure that uh, there's too many, you know, there's not too many uh, terrible racist stereotypes. I mean, that's really what it is. It's like, and, and it's funny to me because it's, it's um, like, they're no stupider than the Fast and Furious movies. Like, the Fast and Furious movies are just as stupid. But I think that because the Transformers movies are so mean-spirited, that's why they have the hatred attached to them that the Fast and Furious movies don't. Yeah, I I mean, they're unapologetically um, problematic, I guess, at best. I mean, literally racist racist and misogynist and just uh, juvenile garbage. Um, yeah, so though like they, I said, they did they did hard work to reclaim the Bumblebee character, though. I yeah, mean. no, and I I I really do have a fondness for Bumblebee. I think it's I think it's a, a step in the right direction, and it shows like you know getting a sympathetic um, lead actress uh, in Haley Steinfeld, and uh, you know adding um, what's um, is it um, what's the 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 guy the male part? Oh, uh, who's his name? Um, not oh, John man. Cena, but um, he was in also Jurassic World. Uh, you mean the kid where... in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, God, that, what's that guy's name? He was in I the Pokemon it. movie too, the Detective Pikachu. I'm gonna look it up. Anyway, um, anyway, yeah, getting getting people like that and not like Shia LaBeouf, like at maximum overexposure. I mean, it's just that's what I'm. Uh, to go back, I wish that ride at Universal Studios was not so heavily connected to that terrible, terrible franchise. Mm-hmm. And all the merchandise you go buy, like I, you, your hat is simplistic, and, and it's 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 something great. I would wear, huh? I said great. Yeah, it's great. But like, you go to buy a hat there at Universal, and you you're wearing like a fucking uh, you know tap out hat, but with Transformers logos on it, like. You look like a fucking tool. Um, anyway, did you find his name? Oh no, I, I gave up. Oh, okay. sorry, uh, actor in Transformers uh, or Bumblebee. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. On another note, um, I'm trying in vain to get Conan O'Bri- tickets to uh, Conan O'Brien's last uh, week of shows, and I'm failing miserably, Cody. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. Well, hopefully, it'll be made up by. Uh, uh, our podcast being an award-winning podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. We uh, well, we we won't talk about that because we don't want to jinx it. But <laughs> we don't want to anyway. jinx it. I have a lot riding on this. <laughs> yeah, a little more than I do, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Financially. <laughs> Financially. Um. Anything. Anyway, anything else before we move on to? Um. Not really. It's. I mean, it's a bit of a. It's a bit of a slow week because I mean I think everything is prepping towards um, next week and. You know, as we said, the the summer movie season in earnest is probably truly starting next week. So, um, you know, this week's been a, a bit light. I mean, I guess, you know, if, if we want to talk news, um, it did come out that Peter Jackson's uh, Beatles documentary, Get Back, oh, yeah. uh, which was slated to come out, I think, in July of this year in theaters, has been now uh, pushed to a four-part Disney Plus series. So... They've uh, it's going to be six hours long, um, a four hour and a half uh, installment or excuse me. Yeah. Four hour and a half st- installments that are going to be airing over Thanksgiving uh, on Disney Plus rather than coming out in theaters. So, you know, depending on how you look at it, there's a lot of people right now who are saying, oh, it's not coming out in theaters. This demands to be seen in theaters who are 
uh, complaining about that. And then there's some people like me who are like, well, shit, you know, he had 60 hours of footage and now we're getting like a six hour thing instead of just two hours, which I'm very excited about because I thought that that trailer was great and I'm a sucker for Beatles stuff, especially, you know, considering that, you know, they've, we're getting six hours of never before seen Beatles footage from, from the fucking, you know, sixties and probably early seventies. Like that's a gift as far as I'm concerned. So I'm curious what the process was like, because this was for all intents and purposes, like done or or allegedly done. So what is this was it cut separately or was this is this expanded so, or is this going to be something like is is the first one going to be what was going to be the movie and the rest of it going to be extras? So I don't I don't necessarily know that it was done because I think when we got a trailer Peter I mean they were I mean again they've had 60 hours of footage that was restored and I have to imagine that they were cutting together pieces of it and I I have to imagine that while editing it or excuse if i want to be um british whilst editing it um you know not british but (laughs) well the beatles are um so i i have to imagine while editing the the film that you know maybe it just turned out to be too much good foot i mean again you have to think about it in this way um as we talked about last time which you you and jocelyn tried to tell me i was wrong about what i was not the the rooftop concert that was kind of their farewell concert was has never been seen before in full in the movie plans to show the full 42 minute concert and so that right there takes up a big chunk of time so i have to imagine and re- so they had access to 55 hours of footage and 140 hours of audio um so you know i have to imagine that you know w- w- when we saw that preview video i think he was editing footage and i have to imagine maybe they just found too much good stuff to throw out so no i i mean i i get that and i i would assume that it was always kind of the plan to to release it all anyway i'm just curious what we're actually going to see and at, mm-hmm. at thanksgiving is if it's going to be like here's what was going to be the movie or Plus is it the, completely yeah. re-edited yeah yeah I mean, just because you know those um his extended editions of the lord of the rings we won't talk about the hobbit because fuck those movies but uh you know those are completely different edits almost you know they're not it's not just you added you know five scenes here it's i mean they're they're redone films so anyway uh yeah disney plus uh what's it called has there been a name released for yet yeah it's called the beatles get back okay and it's uh, consecutively on the 25th, 26th, and 27th of November on Disney+. Plus. Hmm. Look at that. Releasing it almost all in one chunk. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very excited about this. Your happy Thanksgiving to you, Cody. Here's so some I, Brits that don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Look, man, when I saw that news, those, those are my exact words. I said, happy Thanksgiving to me. Talk <laughs> about not a turkey. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. How are you gonna? How are you gonna watch it with uh, watching your MST3K marathon that I'm sure you do every Thanksgiving? <sighs> you know, I'm gonna be honest with you. Uh huh. Um, it's probably this is gonna sound bad, but like we we're gonna have to go back to traveling for Thanksgiving this year. We're gonna have to go back to visiting people. Uh-huh. And I, again, I don't I don't dislike that, but let me tell you, I haven't had a. You know, since I moved to Austin, I had until last year I hadn't had a Thanksgiving where I didn't have to do anything for like yeah. six years. So, um, it, it's gonna have to be like I'm gonna have to wait till the weekend to do it all in a chunk. So, it's mm. um, you know, and, and you know, I'll get some Mystery Science Theater three thousand in there. I watch it all the time anyway because of I, I turn on Pluto TV and just leave it on basically. Yeah, but it's it, the marathon is not what it used to be. Um, but yeah, I, the, I've, my Thanksgiving is going to be completely tied up, I believe. So Mm. unfortunately, what a shame. Yeah. My family's going to be in, uh, New York, so I don't, I don't think I'm going to have a Thanksgiving. My sister is going to be in the Thanksgiving day parade. Oh, really? Thanksgiving. Yeah. She was invited as, uh, as part of her dance team. So my part of most of that family's going out to New York city for that and I'll be, here wow that's cool yeah so it, she'll, she'll be in the macy it's the macy's mm-hmm. parade i guess that's yeah. the only one right yeah wow cool which but hopefully she'll be like behind a cool balloon not like the shitty like 
I hope she's behind Garfield. I feel like Garfield's a staple in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yeah, or Snoopy. Yeah, or Snoopy. Yeah. Not like, here's, you know, fucking the angry birds. Like, oh, who gives a shit? <laughs> That's a funny yeah. thing. Um, what am I? The Here in, in Austin, they have the Chewy's Parade. Um, obviously sponsored by Chewy's Restaurant. And it's always like the Saturday after Thanksgiving. It's actually been canceled this year. Uh, preemptively. Ooh, who, was there some allegations or? No, no, no. It was just pandemic. I'm joking. They, oh, no, no, no. It, it was canceled last year too. But um, so it's fun. It's a fun, fine parade. You know, it, it's never cold enough. It should be cold when this happens. But you know, my old um, my old job, we would broadcast it, and um, they would have balloons. But it was always like a little off. You know, like it wasn't like the good balloons. It'd be like, here's the Coca-Cola polar bear. Like, I feel like that one's probably like been around for a while. And then it was like, here's the angry birds. Like, oh, yeah, it's like 2013 again. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, there was one more. Uh, I believe it was um, uh, Arthur from the mm. PBS series. Yeah. And, you know, which like probably Famous aardvark. Probably fairly timeless, but still not like the cusp of uh, not like cutting edge characters here. It's not like right. the new hot characters. So, you know, it it had a quaint feel to it. Like it was, you know. Hmm. Anyway, um, yeah. So hopefully she's uh, she gets to to march behind a good balloon. That wait. So she they're dancing during the parade. Yeah, it's her, it's a dance team. Wow, that seems hard. Like I dancing mean- and being mobile. Yeah, I mean, maybe they they pause on like a float or something in in the middle of it. I mean, like I don't, I don't know. I mean, oh, you know, you know what? I think they have like a like a staging area. Yeah, that like could be uh, good. like they do it like in front of. They did it in San Antonio too with the Fiesta parades. By the way, is there Fiesta parades this year? I know it's Fiesta there. I don't know if there's parades. I know there is Fiesta this year. I, I'm not sure if they're doing the parades. Hmm. Well, they would I have know, like I've, a, I've never attended that so. I haven't been to a parade in years. I don't like parades generally, so yeah, it's like you, you, even the Spurs championship parades. I'm like, this is kind of boring. <laughs> Watch your you're favorite like, players float by. Well, it, but it's always, but then you get like the the ones like here's the you know the player personnel development director. Like <laughs> Here, here's the medical staff. <laughs> I mean, I'm fine with it. It's great that they get to be on a float, but it's still like oh, this is kind of shitty. Um, we're all over the place here. Anything else before we move on? Nah, I think we're good. All right, let's go ahead and move on to reviews. Here are this week's reviews. First up, we have Luca. Alberto Scorfano. Luca Panguro. Piacere. Trollamo trombetta. It's a human thing. I'm kind of an expert. What does it mean? The, the thing you just said? Come on, I'll show you some more stuff. Mother of Pearl. You live up here? Yeah, me and my dad. He's not even here a whole lot, so I pretty much just do whatever I want. Isn't it dangerous? Yeah, it's the best. Everything good is above the surface. Like, what else? Air! (gasps) (laughs) Gravity, also known as falling! (laughs) The sky, clouds, the sun. Whoa, don't look at it. Just kidding. Definitely look at it. This is the latest film from Disney Pixar. Uh, as with Soul last year, uh, released only on Disney Plus, not in theaters. Yeah, Cody, tell us about Luca and what you thought of it. Sure. So um, Luca is a bit like it's a bit reverse of what I thought it was based on seeing um, like early previews and trailers and stuff for it. Where um, Luca is a sea monster, and um, he is sort of like attracted to the real human world and kind of finds his way out and meets uh, a new friend that he um that he connects with and uh eventually kind of runs away from home and um and uh it becomes obsessed with vespas and, <laughs> and some other things happen um sponsored but yeah, like, by vespa clearly yeah clearly <laughs> um which i didn't know vespa was like a brand uh oh really yeah, I did not know that. I thought yeah. it was, it was yeah, just like a, a kind of scooter or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like a shorthand. Yeah. Kind of like, like a Kleenex. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. So, 
it is a Pixar movie. Uh, oddly enough, uh, not coming out in theaters at all. Uh, you know, lately the trend has been with theaters open that you have the option to see it. You know, Black Widow, for example, in a couple weeks is coming out in both, and you can see it either in theaters or at home. But this one is exclusively on Disney Plus. Um, and uh, it's sort of, you know, it sort of continues this Pixar trend that we've seen in recent memories of being perfectly fine. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, especially in the last maybe like decade or so, I've been pretty underwhelmed with Pixar. Um, I think that the exception to that is Coco, which I think is really great. Yeah, I um, agree. I agree 100%. Yeah, and I think that Coco is easily the best Pixar movie in in quite some time. You know, even even going back to like Inside Out and Toy Story Four. I mean, I think um, you know we, we've talked about it on this podcast. Like, is Pixar in a creative slump? And um, I want to say that they kind of are in a way because this movie is not bad by any stretch. I don't think it's like so. Like, it's not like Onward, which I think Onward was like a pretty you know a pretty underwhelming experience. Mm. Um, Whereas I think this one is a little bit better. I think, you know, I think the big problem um, with Pixar, or excuse me, with uh, with uh, Luca is that it's really slow to start. I think it has a really underwhelming first act, um, which features Luca getting to know his friend and like kind of getting used to the outside world. I think once the second and third act kick into gear, Luca becomes a lot more enjoyable. It becomes a lot, you know, I think there's some good funny stuff. I think a lot of the humor in you know luca trying to protect his identity and like some of like the the jokes with like water splashing on them can be good um and but you know i think that where the movie struggles is that i don't really know what it's trying to say or accomplish um there's a lot of writing out there if you if you read it right now that luca is one of pixar's first like kind of like gay storyline kind of alignments if you interpret it that way, if you read interviews with the director, the director denies it completely. The The director is saying like, it's prepubescent. It's, it's not supposed to be romantic in any way. It's not meant to kind of say anything about that. If you were to interpret it, it wouldn't shock me if someone took it as sort of like a gay metaphor, especially given a lot of the dialogue, um, you know, given the idea of Luca has to protect his identity. And then there's a lot of talk about, you know, people accepting him for who he is and, and all of that, to me, yeah. it's very loose. I don't think that it's. I don't think it's really there. I think you really have to kind of look for it to find it. But if you if you look beyond that kind of thing, it's really kind of fundamental storytelling in that it's about a kid trying to hide his identity, but also trying to connect with the world. And he's a very curious kid, and he's trying to learn about stuff that is somewhat forbidden to him and he's trying to kind of it's like a typical coming of age like a, a kid who's sheltered and then tries and then like finds stuff out about the world and then explores with you know different people and that's really what the movie boils down to um it, you know it becomes about running this winning this like triathlon event and it's it's just sort of by the numbers like i i won't sit here and call it bad i and i won't say that i didn't enjoy um you know the second and third acts of it but you know i think there's some there's some bit of expectation that comes with Pixar and whether it's fair or not, I think can be debated, but I think it comes from a place that Pixar has been such a bastion of great quality animation films for so long that when we get these movies that seem a little by the numbers, um, it's disappointing. And I think this movie in terms of like, just coming from a perspective of like, this is a Pixar movie where we expect a lot. I don't think it's great. I think it's fine, but it's not great. Yeah, you know, um, I I feel like the Pixar ship has sailed when it comes to the greatness. I mean, I think it coasts for it'll coast forever on the strength of stuff like, uh, you know, even uh, Inside Out, which I thought was not terribly great, and stuff like Wall-E, and uh, you know, going back further to Toy Story three and Toy Story two, and then Ratatouille, Ratatouille, right? Um, you know, this I think falls into the same camp as onward um and a little bit as uh the same as soul in that the concepts themselves are very complicated and i don't know that they do a good job telling the story in a way that makes sense like onward had 
you know, the, this family of of ogres or whatever they were, I don't remember, trolls, whatever, that that used that told a very sort of human story. You know, it really could have been just humans in that story. Mm-hmm. Um, Soul has a lot of legwork to do to introduce this concept of, you know, the the main character dying and then him, uh, you know, these souls that are kind of unassigned and how they have to get assigned to, to bodies on Earth. So it, it, it's got a lot of, of that in it in that this is... You know, Luke is a sea monster who, when he is exposed to land, turns into a human. The movie doesn't really ever kind of explain it. Right. It doesn't really. It doesn't seem to stand for anything. Yeah, it's not the mythology of it is is you know the, the, it's non-existent. You know, it's this Italian set thing with, um, you know, one of the one of the things that it's just kind of careless and it's it's it seems like low hanging fruit. Like it's it's reaching for the low hanging fruit too because there's there's a point where Luca and uh, Alberto, which is his friend, who's also a uh, sea monster, um, you know, it, it, to further uh, play up the or to further uh, indulge people who are reading this as uh, you know a, a same sex love story, who's also um, a sea monster in hiding, um, who is jealous of Luca's friendship with a with a girl, um. The two of them are out like playing and they hear like some sea captain say like, hey, stupid whatever. Mm. And then they use that wording in town and it turns like people against them. But by all for by all accounts, they speak the same language. Yeah. Like like whatever this is supposed to be. I mean, I assume it's supposed to be Italian, but they're speaking English and they know how to talk to people. And then. They they keep saying this line for the like I guess the cheap sh- laughs that come with it in a kids movie, uh, and that that's really the kind of carelessness I you don't expect from Pixar. Ah, oh, fettuccine, Jaren. I mean, I mean, it's like, hey, stupid! Oh, and they're like, oh, why did this person not react kindly to it? Like, well, because you call them stupid. You know what this means. You speak the same fucking language, right? Um, you know, it's just careless stuff like that that you'd expect in a in a lesser animated film and i mean you know we're guilty of it too you know perpetuating this myth that it coming from pixar is supposed to be something um you know higher of higher value than than another animated film but you know look at mitchell's versus the machines from a few weeks ago that was a way better film um you know that that has this sort of um you know a, a you know that that also is full of product placement. I, I mean, I don't know if Vespa paid for this to be in a Disney film, but they mentioned the name Vespa a lot and show the logo <laughs> an awful lot. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it, it's again, it's fine. I don't know that it's of the three Pixar movies that have come out that have been released in the last year. Um, it's definitely the weakest. I don't know that it's um, it's not bad. It's just sort of, it's just really kind of. Uh, I, I just, I just struggled to understand what it was for me. Like, so many of these Pixar movies are analogs for different things. They're yeah. They're, I mean, it's a lot about like, loss and growing up and. Yeah, but it's but it's a very typical coming of age movie where if you strip back the intricacies and weirdness of like the fact that he's a sea monster and you <laughs> and you like peel back that idea, it's really nothing yeah know? yeah it doesn't make any uh, and then uh you know it, the the idea that this this village is sort of predicated on the fact that they fight sea monsters right and then you know you can probably figure out at the end how that works out right and you're like well uh, yeah what like why did he have to be a sea monster at all like what did this yeah. accomplish it, ser- it serves no purpose i will say though i enjoyed um the uh the voice work of jim gaffigan uh, in, in the movie uh and you know it's it's strange because it's like it features like jacob tremblay playing an italian boy <laughs> and you know jim gaffigan and maya rudolph playing italian parents and stuff it's uh that's a weird thing to me like i don't understand yeah it, it's look it, it's it it's probably culturally insensitive to italians <laughs> yeah, a little bit yes um uh, you know, I don't 
I don't know. Um, I mean, the director is Italian, so I mean, he yeah. Was... But I mean, it's like, like the bad guy, like might as well be, like uh, Peter Sellers being a, an, a playing an Italian. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and, you know, and the, there's like a their triathlon consists of eating pasta in the middle. Like it is kind <laughs> of pretty insensitive. If you... Well, and every curse word they say again. That's why I said fettuccine towards you because it's like oh, it's that's them right. cursing and saying like uh you know italian food words um no i i know maya rudolph said well oh sharks or something like that like oh also there's a by the way uh did you stick around for the end credits scene oh no i forgot to watch it's it's i think it's the first pixar that's had that pixar film that's had an end credit scene like direct very much at the end um and it, it it ties up a character that that shows up and disappears for no reason, um, played by Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, yep, uh huh. Um, who was like, oh yeah, what happened to that plot point? Um, and for some reason, sh- uh, fish are like sheep in this world. Like Luca herds them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, there's a whole lot of stuff that just like it never really gets into. Well, yeah, I mean, it sort of builds up. It sort of world builds Luca's as like some sort of like like you said she like sheep herder or like even like teacher kind of thing it had like that finding dory kind of feel mm-hmm. and then does just like abandons it completely yeah um but one thing i did notice when uh when i was waiting cuz i read that there was an end credit scene so i was waiting through the credits and um i guess this thing had a a theatrical release planned cuz there's a credit for stereoscopic 3d artists hmm. just like those poor people did all this work that no one cares about and no one will ever see how they got paid baby well i guess i don't know how much i don't think they get paid that much but anyway what's your grade for luca uh you know what i i probably give it a b minus i think that it's fine i found myself enjoying the standard if not you know dull um second and third act where again like i said i think the first act's a bit of a mess and i think anytime you get you know um uh luca and alberto getting to know each other and the vespa stuff i was not into it at all (laughs) i think i think it gets a lot better in the middle of the movie where it becomes about this triathlon it becomes about sort of this individuality i think it becomes about luca becoming curious um as a as a learner and 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 trying to figure out what he wants to do in terms of like going to school and stuff um so i give it a b minus i think that it is um lower mid-tier pixar yeah a b minus is probably fair to for me too i don't think it was anything special um i i feel like the first act like you said is is really messy like i feel like there's Mm -hmm. some workshopping that could have been done to to streamline that but um yeah i would say by like 20 to 25 minutes in it finally kicks in but the first 15 20 minutes were tougher i didn't like anything about it until (laughs) until until the girl shows up in the movie i think the movie is not good at all yeah see because you you spend time building that friendship between luca and alberto and then all of a sudden a third friend comes in it feels like luca and alberto should have been friends already Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can know. see that. Yeah, anyway. I can see that. Anyway, it is available on Disney Plus now if you'd like to watch it. Uh, let's move on to our last film, The Sparks Brothers. Frequently asked questions about sparks. Who are sparks? We are sparks. What are sparks? Sparks are a band. Are you a real band? Next question. Are you an English band? We are not an English band. Dude. What do you play? I'm the singer. I'm not the singer. Are you identical twins? We are not identical twins. Are you brothers? We are brothers. How did you first meet? We are brothers. Do you live together? We do not live together. Are you from a rich background? We are from a middle class background. What is your sexual persuasion? My sexual persuasion is slightly horny. How many Sparks albums are there? There are 25 Sparks albums. How many Sparks albums will there be? With advances in medical technology, hopefully there will be two to three hundred more Sparks albums. <laughs> this is a documentary directed by Edgar Wright, uh, of course, filmmaker behind Shaun of the Dead, Baby Driver, Hot Fuzz, Scott, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Uh, what's the third one? Uh, the World's End. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's it, right? I think that covers it, yeah. 
Space. He made the TV show Space. Anyway, uh, this is his first documentary, right? It is. You saw this back at Sundance. I didn't get a chance to see it, but you did, and you um, you have some thoughts, Cody. Yeah, so I mean, my thoughts are are relatively general because I have not seen this movie since January. Um, so it's it's been a while, in the words of Stained. Um, so, <laughs> um, God damn it. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, it's a uh, so it's it's a documentary that it's Edgar Wright's first documentary, and you know, Sparks is a band that's really interesting in that you know, so many rock documentaries these days are about these bands who like you know, were very heavily influential, but never broke through and crossed through the mainstream. So like the biggest analog I can think of is like a uh, big star, nothing can hurt me. Um, which was a, a movie about the seventies rock or a documentary about the seventies rock band, uh, big star who was really heavily influenced, uh, influential in, um, you know, anything that came after it. Um, and this is very similar in that way. I will say where this documentary sort of diverts from the typical rock documentary. This is an entirely comprehensive documentary. So, um, you know, when Sparks in that clip you just saw um, talk about having 25 albums, this movie goes through every single album of theirs. Um, And I mean every single one. So in sequential order, you learn about the beginning of Sparks. You... um, and then you go album by album and see their sort of progression. And the great thing about Sparks as a band and as a story is that they have, um, you know, clearly in the United States have not broke through because, you know, I would venture to say most people have not heard of them unless they're kind of hardcore music fans. Yeah, I don't. I've never heard of them before. Yeah, yeah. And they've never had like big hits. They've never been super popular. They've never, you know, had radio songs. Um, but they were really big in England. And they really took off in England, which is why, um, you know, the you know, if you see you know taglines and stuff about the movie, they talk about the best English band to ever come out of America is what they say, um, because they really um, attracted that British pop uh, sense of music, and so um, it, it kind of it kind of shows that you know through their trajectory, even when they popped in the in like the late seventies as a as a big band how they sort of never compromise their vision and they're they're a very strange pop band they've always been a step ahead of their time um uh and you know after watching the movie i started listening to them a little bit more and i and i really enjoyed um you know their one of their earlier albums kimono my house is really amazing um and they're just kind of this sort of weird pop band that throughout time have never gone away. They've never changed. They've never, uh, you know, they've had they've made periods where maybe people didn't like their stuff as much, but they've continued to make their music. And so, as a as a movie displaying kind of um, perseverance, I think it's really interesting. I think as a way of showing how they've subverted a lot of, um, you know, um, uh, you know, being pigeonholed as any one thing. I think it's interesting. It's two and a half hours, so goodness. Um, so as a well, you know what? It's probably more like two hours and fifteen minutes. Um, but either way, as a as a documentary, it's long. That's a long documentary. Over two hours is a long documentary, and I think that you know, going in, you're going to walk out with a sense of who Sparks are. I get the sense that if you find out who Sparks, oh, well, the other thing too is that Edgar allows a lot of songs to play through. So there's a shitload of music in this. So. Every period of time, there's you, you're going to hear the actual songs that made them great, and I think that's where that's one thing where Edgar actually does a really good job is that so many times when you get these documentaries about the bands who never made it, it's a lot of talking heads and people talking about like, oh, this is how great they were, and um, you know, uh, this is why they were big, and here's how they influenced me, but they don't let you see for yourself why that band was great. You you don't ever get it in context. You can't hear the music. And here you get like, you know, close to full length songs every so often. You you know, there's always music playing in the background. There's clips of music videos and live performances. So I think it's it's a really great introduction into getting to know the band. Again, if you're not into Sparks or you don't see the the point or you don't find them, you know, particularly interesting, it's a long thing to sit through um, mm-hmm. to try to go through every single album of a band that you may not like. If you're into it, if you like it, um, it is an interesting thing. You know, you see 
I wish it had more of this. So you see the intro where there's where Edgar's like doing the voiceover and asking them, you know, the questions. There's a lot of usage of like claymation and animation to kind of break it up. I wish there was more of that because it starts out being like, oh yeah, this is Edgar Wright making a documentary. It's it's you you see his style in it. It fades over time. Hmm. Um, so for me, um, I I enjoyed getting to know this band. I think that it is it is comprehensive to a point that is that is a little bit too much at times. I don't think they need to go through every single album in detail, um, but it is enjoyable. The Sparks Brothers, uh, um, Ron and Russell Mayel, are uh, really interesting guys. They're really funny guys, um, and you can see how e- they even influenced people like Paul McCartney, who um, who in a music video like parodied the uh, uh, like a Sparks music video. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's interesting enough where if you're any kind of like music nerd or you're into music at all, um, it's it's definitely worth watching for this like piece of rock and roll history. It's funny to me how this stuff, um, like it still happens where people will like these these bands and, and performers will be huge overseas and you still don't really ever hear about them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like even now, it just reminded me of, um, did you ever watch Flight of the Concords? I did it. No. Are, are you familiar with uh, a comedian named Arge Barker? No. Um, he so. had a he had a small role in, in Flight of the Concords. Um, he was like their neighbor. It was him and Eugene Merman that were like the neighbors in the building. Um, I, I enjoyed Ar- I saw an Arge Barker stand up special once. So I looked him up, and he's massive in Australia for some reason. Like it, mm-hmm. it's it's bizarre. And I remember um, a comedian named Tom Rhodes. If you're familiar with Tom Rhodes from the '90s, he had like a show, like a TV show in Denmark. Like it's just it's it's weird that stuff still happens, and that we're still so insulated, even though we have the world at our fingertips, that this stuff can happen. And like you, you would have figured in the last 20 years of the internet, you would have heard about Sparks, yeah, at least in passing. But the idea that that it's still this cultural thing that you don't that never through it's it's still fascinating how how small the world has gotten and how how much this stuff can still slip through uh, yeah i mean the, the idea that this band has been charting for years in england and in the united states is still sort of underground after they've been around i mean they've released 25 albums you know it's, it's not as if this is this is some brand new thing like they've been around for you know since the since the 70s and um and, you know, of course, it's interesting that, you know, Edgar Wright, as a British person, has been a huge fan of them for a long time because they broke. And and so it features a lot of talking head interviews with a lot of really famous people. I mean, um, you know, Weird Al is in it as a big fan. Uh, you know, Scott Ackerman, Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, a number of other people, too. Where Patton Oswalt, you know, it's it's one of, you know, it's, it's like that thing that, that, it was similar, like I said, to Big Star, where it's like your band's favorite band. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of people believe that a lot of modern pop music is sort of filtered through the spectrum of Sparks. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just kind of a fascinating thing where I, I feel like after people see this movie, I think they will become big fans of Sparks because I think it's really interesting. But it's, uh, yeah, it's bigger than, I mean, even Sparks have a movie coming out where they, um, uh, it's a movie that's coming out with uh, Adam Driver later this year called Annette. Uh, it's a French movie where they wrote the script and they wrote the music in it. And, you know, it could be an Oscar player, you know, it's, it's we'll, we'll see what happens, but um, this could be a really great year for that band. So, um, so let's, let's pivot. Now you actually talked to Edgar Wright about this. Yeah. Back at Sundance. Um, I had the chance, uh, the amazing chance to interview Edgar Wright about this documentary. And, um, uh, it was a great, I mean, for me as a Edgar Wright, uh, fanboy for, you know, the last 15 years, um, it was a bit surreal, but, um, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about the documentary and, um, you know, especially with this being his first time around and then his, you know, his viewpoints on Sparks. So it was, it was a great conversation. Well, let's play it. Yeah. So, uh, I, I just kind of wanted to start off and, um, and ask you, you know, as, as, uh, you know, being a big music fan, I'm sure there were countless bands that you could have uh, made a film about um, what is it about your personal connection to Sparks or the story of Sparks that uh, really drove you to make this film? Well, I think it was something where um, it wasn't like I necessarily had kind of thought actively about doing a documentary 
or like picking like a band to do a documentary about. It sort of came about in a weird way because I had been a Sparks fan for a long time. And I think maybe my fandom had got like sort of, you know, bigger in a way just because I was kind of as, I'd known them since I was five years old. They'd always been a bit of an enigmatic riddle to me in terms of they kept coming back into my live life in like different guises, doing different genres. So, you know, in, in especially in a pre-internet age, I would be always like sort of impressed and amused, but kind of baffled by them. It's like, who is this band that keep changing their sound and like, and, and are still going after decades and decades. And then I think as I then in like the last 20 years, especially since the release of Little Beethoven, I was just like endlessly impressed by the fact that unlike any other band that have been going as long as they have, they seem to be getting better or certainly like they never were like dumbing down. They were always pushing for something kind of more or getting more ambitious. And it was just sort of highly unusual to me. So I guess in a way I had a lot of questions just as a fan. And then I found myself like when you're a Sparks fan, you start to become like an evangelist in the sense that you kind of like always trying to turn other people onto Sparks. <laughs> especially when they mention a band who have been influenced by Sparks. Um, and then it's like, oh, wow, if you like them, you'll love Sparks. So then I got it into my head, and this is probably around the time that I actually met Ron and Russell, where I would be saying to my friends, you know, this band deserves to be bigger than they actually are, or more people need to know who they are. And like maybe like if there was only a documentary about them, like, you know, then everybody could see how ahead of the curve they were and like how influential they'd been. And uh, I started to sort of say that they were like the, the, the best and most influential band to not have a music documentary about them. Now, eventually, um, one of my friends called me out on this. Like I went to see a Sparks gig in 2017 with Phil Lord, the director. And I was saying the same thing to him as saying, the only thing stopping this band from being as big as they can be is a documentary, somebody needs to make a film about Sparks. And Phil said, you should do it. And I said, I will. And then after the gig, I pitched the idea to Ronald Russell. And as soon as I'd said it out loud, I realized that was a, a verbal contract, a promise that could not be broken. So like maybe like three years later, here we are with the finished film. I mean, in a weird way, it's that thing. It was more of a succinct way of me rather than chewing people's ear off at dinner, trying to kind of convince them to listen to Sparks, eventually I thought it would be easier for me to make, you know, a two hour plus film about them and say, here, watch this. <laughs> so, so sort of similar to that, in a lot of documentaries about bands or musicians that are either underrated or underexposed, it, it seems like it would be a challenge to, you know, tell the story of the band, but also contextualize them to an uninformed audience, like about their legacy, and also give them an idea of what they sound like if they've never heard them before. So what's the challenge of, of doing that without the ability to like sit someone down and play them a bunch of albums? Well, I feel like maybe, you know, like, um, you know, the film is just over two hours long. And, and part of that is because I wanted to give people, especially Sparks Virgins, the opportunity to actually hear them. I felt like watching, I watch a lot of music documentaries and sometimes, not mentioning any names, I kind of get annoyed by some documentaries where they never give you the space to actually hear the song. And maybe you hear like two seconds of it and then immediately the next talking head comes in. There was one in particular recently where I, I won't mention the name of it, but I thought, wow, if you didn't already know these songs, this documentary gives you no opportunity to appreciate it for like even like a second. So with Sparks and with a 50 year career and one that I felt like it was important to contextualize them. And they're a band where the, like, the misses are as fascinating as the hits and somehow as important to the story as the hits. I just felt like you had to kind of like let people hear the music and, and see how it develops. So that was a really important thing to me. And I found in the edit that, you know, I think there was a point actually where I'd been editing during lockdown and I, I had a cut of the movie. And weirdly enough, I don't know why I keep talking about Phil Lord, but, <laughs> but he was one of the many directors that I showed it to. 
And he did say, he said, I love the documentary. He goes, it'd be great if you could hear a bit more of the songs. And so I said to the editor, I said, we're going to do a pass where we just like let it breathe a little bit and just hear some of the songs. So, you know, that's the finished thing is that, and, and you know, we're covering, a, you know, like a huge um, discography and that goes, I mean, the first Sparks album came out 50 years ago this year. So it's an extraordinary like body of work, but also it encompasses so much uh, like time and also just that, the, the great thing about it for me was to show in the documentary who influenced them or rather what influenced them, not just music, but like film and like TV and even advertising and just like pop culture. Then like the music that they make, then you see through the interviewees, the people that are inspired by Sparks and you know what music they make. So it starts to kind of connect a lot of dots for people where they sort of understand, huh, okay, that makes sense because that band sounds a little bit like Sparks. And they, you know, I got people on record to sort of say that they like um, were hugely influenced by them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that actually leads into another question I had, which is sort of about, you know, music is obviously really important to your filmmaking, you know, creating soundtracks and needle drops in, in the films themselves when you have so much material to pull from from sparks and also trying to give an idea of the of the context of the band was it a different kind of challenge to pick the right songs for the moments in the film um no not really because i think sort of they organically came through they they're sort of telling the story themselves so you know like um you, you might just, it, it's, it's a sort of an embarrassment of riches in a way, but I think ultimately to tell the story of each phase, you know, we pick the kind of the, 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 the key songs from, from each. And, you know, like there might be like a few ones that kind of like don't kind of get their day in court, but for the most part, you know, like um, through telling an album is that you have kind of like the sort of, the, you can get the shape of the album from the, the, the tracks that we feature, you know? And some that we go into, what's nice also is in, in places to go into great detail about an album track. It just like, there's one point where Neil Gaiman does the deep dive on one of the songs from Indiscreet, which just because he's so passionate about it, like it might not be the most famous Spark song, but what you get from it is how like um, fervent the fans are and how eloquent they can be talking about a song that they heard in 1975 and has never left their brain. Mm -hmm. in, in sort of on that, uh, on that same path, uh, through either your own exploration or, or talking to people who, uh, who you interviewed for this, did you walk away from, uh, from this experience with a perspective on either a particular album or period of time for the band that was opened by hearing someone kind of talk about it, sort of like you talked about with, with him? Yeah, I think actually, like in doing the documentary, I definitely um, got to know albums that I previously didn't know that well or only listened to a couple of times. Like, um, I wasn't as au fait with the first album, actually. Like, so my kind of knowledge initially had started more with like Kimono, My House. But I, 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 through doing the documentary, there's albums that now I really kind of like sort of grew to sort of love, like, the first half Nelson Stroke Sparks album or Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing or like ones that are like more, you know, deep cuts in the kind of discography, like Introducing Sparks, which, you know, I think Ron and Russell, when they saw the movie, they were dumbfounded to see Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> going into great detail, talking about probably their least successful album. <laughs> so I thought like they found that stuff like fascinating. So. I mean, definitely there's like songs that I sort of like were, were not among my favorite Spark songs that now are. Like, you know, I think, you know, like fun things like in the documentary, there's a, a great kind of like couple of anecdotes about the song, um, music that you can dance to, <laughs> which, which now I know the story of the song and how it came to be in, in which a record executive said, uh, hey, yeah, this is great, but can you make some music that you can dance to? And then they did that, like, you know, to the letter, almost as an FU to the executive. <laughs> that makes me love the song even more. Yeah. Um, 
so there's there's uh, there's a lot of people who would say that this that uh, sparks are a bit of a mystery, and I think it's Jason Schwartzman in the documentary who says that there's some level of mystique that he would like to even keep about the band. Uh, did you share any of that hesitancy to peel back the curtain, or um, or did you sense that from Ron and Russell at all? And what ultimately uh, made for comfort with that decision? I think that they you know, like maybe, I don't think they were hesitant at all because they were really excited about me doing the documentary. But I mean, I feel like to, to me in a way, like if there was any like worry about what happens if you kind of explain the enigma, I think the fact that Ron and Russell um, themselves, I think don't really know where sparks end and they start, I think is almost like wrapped up in the enigma itself. Like, um, so, and in a way, like sometimes when you kind of reveal like the sort of the everyday lives of rock stars and even maybe the mundanity of it in some respects, to me, that makes the work even more impressive. It's like, it's almost like that Albert Einstein thing of him expending zero energy on what he's gonna wear and what he's gonna eat so he can put everything into his work. And I think Sparks are a bit like that as well, is that like the sort of, they lead these relatively normal lives and then, but on record, it's this, the most avant-garde, operatic, cinematic sounding, spectacular, like the music that they make is their sort of like, just their way of expressing themselves. It like it, it, in, in a more pronounced way than most rock stars, which I find personally quite fascinating. And then not giving anything away, but um, at the end of the movie, <laughs> in the end credits, no less, we we decide to kind of like um having dispelled some myths about sparks we decide to create a whole bunch of other bs <laughs> which then people can can work out for the next like next 50 years whether that's true or not yeah uh, um in terms of uh cr like creating the film was this a situation where you were you had access to a bunch of footage and sifted through it to find the best stuff or was any of this given to you from Ron and Russell how how did the uh, the compiling of footage come about? It was a bit of everything. We had an amazing archive producer, Kate Griffiths. And so obviously there's a ton of stuff out there from their different TV appearances and like live work and stuff. But Ron and Russell provided some things that had never been seen, like, like Russell's um, student film, his French New Wave spoof. But then also we got a lot of stuff from people out there because myself and sparks on social media put the sort of call out saying you know we're making this documentary do you have any footage or any photos or any stories and we got a huge response from that and some of that stuff is in the movie like stuff that ron russell had never seen like so, sort of footage from some tour like the 1976 big beat tour that fans took or um you know that's how we found there's a moment in the film where we have this concert footage where there's a lot of female, young female stage invaders, like disrupting the concert and through the, putting the word out on social media, one of them got in contact with us to tell her story. And I said, hey, we have that gig. Let's interview her. She wrote this amazing email. And I said to the producer, George Hankin, I said, I said we should get her to tell that story on camera. Because how, that was one of the things with the documentary that was like this amazing gift is like, unusually for a band that had been going since the early seventies, a lot of the participants are still with us. So like, so nearly all of the personnel of the first album are in the documentary. All of the band, like the producer Todd Runger and the engineer Jim Lowe, their tour manager at the time, Larry DuPont, who also took all the photos, it's sort of really kind of odd and um, amazing to have access to all of those people still now. And then weird things like, hey, we can interview a fan that jumped on stage like uh, at this 1975 concert, like and who remembers it in vivid detail and then cross cut with the roadie who pulled her off like stage, who happens to now be the Rolling Stones tour manager. So it, it, it very quickly, became like an oral history. And that was really down to sort of like the wide range of people who wanted to talk about it. Mm -hmm. From famous people to kind of people who were fans at the time and remain fans to this day. Yeah, yeah. So I think I have time for one more question. So I just, I kind of wanted to 
to get your sense of, you know, I, I feel I feel like this movie is going to be an introduction to Sparks for a lot of people. And I, I've also, um, while I was getting into them, found your Sparks for Beginners Spotify playlist, which was also really helpful in, in getting to know them. And I'm wondering um, if, if there's anything that you want people to take away from the film in terms of the legacy of the band, sort of, um, you know, the idea that they they continue to be who they were no matter what. Well, what do you feel like is the is the big takeaway from uh, that you hope people gain, and 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 uh, and also, do you hope to see any sort of like spike in Spotify plays or any kind of bigger uh, footprint for the, for the band in this stage of their career? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm almost. Even though I know Sparks fans are going to love it. I'm actually like even more excited for like people who are Sparks virgins to watch the movie because I think from the reaction I've had already from people who don't know them, they like are sort of kind of agog that there's like a, a whole chapter in musical history that they missed and featuring so many other people that they already like. So I think there's an element with the documentary where I think it will connect the dots for a lot of people. And then I think the takeaway from it is it really is like a story of like, um, you know, um, persistence of vision. The Sparks have sort of never wavered from this kind of um, their ambitions and their artistic vision and their kind of self-belief. And that sort of, I think, is a really inspiring thing because a lot of people who, um, you know, um, follow their dream get easily dissuaded or, you know, there's probably about 10 points in the documentary where I feel like other bands would have jacked it in. And the fact that Sparks just kept on going with this sort of like incredible, like sort of resilience against kind of sometimes total indifference, I, I think is ultimately just like a, a, an incredibly admirable and impressive feat. And there's a point where like, if you keep going for that long and doing what you want to do rather than listening to like sort of, um, you know, the kind of the, trying to respond to the whims of a mainstream audience, there's a certain point where the audience just catches up with you. Like if you stay that far ahead of the curve, it sort of becomes like the tortoise and the hare. Do you know what I mean? It's like sort of like sparks win the race, you know, a 50 year overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Cine Snob podcast. To read reviews, interviews and more, visit cinesnob.net. See you next week.